0: Welcome to The Career Pod, brought to you by
1: Transition Solutions. Your host for today's episode is our founder and CEO,
0: Mr. Fred Studley. David Brazell is a veteran technology editor and writer, and he's been a professional journalist since 1975. As he described his early career, uh, the value of being persistent and having an ability to take a risk uh, was greatly rewarded. Also, uh, Luck played a role in some of his early uh, career transitions, and he talks in some detail about those. His uh, career has really followed the the arc of technology change in hardware, software, and more recently, the internet. He's developed a specific expertise in communicating best practices in manufacture, and he was an original co-founder of the Manufacturing Leadership Council of over 1,000 manufacturing leaders. So uh, enjoy the discussion with David, and uh, I think for those looking into any level of manufacturing, you'll find this discussion very interesting. Okay, David Brazell, uh welcome to Career Pride. Thank you, Fred. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you here. And, and uh, we'll be talking about your career uh, along the way. You're, you're a very experienced person. Uh, editor and, and writer in the whole field of technology and manufacturing. Uh, but let's go back early on. Uh, where did you go to school? We found uh, that family and environment has a real influence on a person's career uh, and how they select a career and so forth. So it's not only where you went to school. Maybe those other environmental, whether it be family or early mentors that may have helped you or, or, or whatever. So why don't you take me back uh, to the old days here?
1: Well, w- going way back to the beginning, I had ac- absolutely no thought or intention of going into journalism when I was young, when I was a kid. I was, from very early on, interested in the legal profession, and I wanted to become a lawyer. And the reason for that was we had a couple of lawyers in the family, One on my father's side and one on my mother's side. I was much closer to the one on my mother's side. Um, My Uncle George, who is actually still alive, is 92 years old, and he is still practicing law in Pennsylvania, goes to work every day, amazingly. And he was kind of a role model for me, and I always wanted to be a lawyer, and this was my intention all the way through high school, even going into the early years of college. But then that changed. When I first went to college, it was, it, it was the years of the Vietnam War. Right. And uh, it was also, a few years later, the beginning of the Watergate issue. Hmm. And all of this had an effect on me. And I, you know, I was very, very moved, and I, I developed a very deep belief that the integrity of our democracy was um, really very directly linked to how well-informed we would be as citizens and the key to that, of course, is a, f- a free and open press. Yeah. And at the, around that same time as I was graduating college, I was working on the school newspaper and, be, and fell in love with it, but as I was wor- I was graduating college and, and then transitioning into graduate school... And
0: if I could just interject, where did you go to college? I
1: went to, to school at Fairleigh Dickinson University in Northern New Jersey, okay. Teaneck, New Jersey. And as I was transitioning into graduate school, um, I was offered a fellowship at, uh, our, at the school's, at FDU's graduate school called the uh, uh, Institute for International Relations. And um, I came in contact with a person there that became a pivotal influence for me because my fellowship was based around working for, in addition to being a student, but also working for one of the visiting professors there. And the visiting professor that I was assigned to was a gentleman by the name of Lester Markell. Lester Markell was one of the um, major figures in American journalism in the 20th century. He was the founding Sunday editor of the New York Times and remained in that post for over 40 years from 1929 to 1965. And at the time I met him he was retired already but he was a professor at the school that I was going to and I was assigned to him as a graduate student to work with him Hmm. Um, but we forged a friendship very very early and he opened up a world to me Hmm. that was amazing. I met the, all the major figures in American journalism in the mm-hmm. early 70s, the top people of the New York Times, the television stations, the Washington Post. And I worked with Lester for two years as part of my graduate thing. And that really inculcated in me a love for journalism, sure. and I continued to pursue it after that.
0: Well, that that certainly is uh, uh, life-altering, that opportunity to... Not only learn with a person, but just almost through osmosis, just absorb uh, that kind of gravitas and that that uh, knowledge.
1: In many ways, he was a he was my first important mentor.
0: Uh, you know, if you if you look at the the basics, and what was your major too? As you, graduated?
1: my major was political science, because right. my whole intention, as I said before, was to go into the legal profession.
0: Right, and did you? Finish grad school or did you go to work?
1: uh... I did not finish graduate school. I went right into daily newspapers.
0: All right. And what was the first gazette you worked at? What was the newspaper? (laughs) Well, it was
1: very interesting. And um, Lester encouraged me to, he he always had, he, he once wrote me a letter and he said, whatever you do, wherever you go for an interview, always make sure you have a couple of new ideas in your knapsack. When I first started to go out for a, a newspaper job, but I didn't have a degree in journalism. I had a degree in political science. Right. And so I, I basically uh, made a list of newspapers in the New York, New Jersey area. And I made a list. And without scheduling an interview, I just went there hmm. and tried to get in. And... I had some success with this. So one day I went to the Newark Star ledger, unannounced, no invitation. I drove in, went to the front office, and I said, I- I'd like to see the editor, whose name at that time was Mort Pye, P-Y-E. And she said, oh, well, you can't see Mr. Pye without, a, without a, uh, appointment. an appointment. right?" You know? uh, so I kind of walked out of the front of the office and I, and I w- went around the back of the building Near the loading docks.
0: So stalking. Uh, uh, yeah, is I basically kind of a, infiltrated. A, right, and is. through
1: the loading docks, I worked my way into the back of the building, <laughs> went into the newsroom, and I asked people, "Where is Pye sit?" Okay. And I, and they pointed to me where he was. So I went up and uh, to his office. A glass door. I knocked on the door. I said, "Mr. Pie, I'd like to talk to you." He says, "Who are you?" So I said, "I'm." Um, David Brosell and I'm interested in working for the Newark Star Ledger. All right. Says, Do we have an appointment. I says, no, I says, but he was he was interested. He says, "Come on in and sit down." Yeah, sure. <laughs> and and uh, we talked for a while. He was very nice. He said, "We'll get back to you," and they never really got back to me. And I kept doing this. Right. And I also did this at the at the um, at the Hudson Dispatch in Hudson County, New Jersey, and it worked. Mm. Yeah. And the editor hired me on the spot.
0: You know. a uh, couple takeaways for the listeners i mean whether you, anybody ultimately becomes a trespasser like you did or stocks people the point is it's it's an aggressive process you have to be assertive and we can use technology now to do much of this but i don't think uh, jobs and opportunities don't come to you often you have to go out and, and take get them, them. Yeah. and uh, so i think there's <clears> uh, a good lesson to be learned there yeah uh how about okay so you were hired I was hired yeah and and you go to work and you start doing these things and uh, you probably had what are the prerequisites at a, at a for a journalist early on in in some of the really basic in terms of English language skills and whatever but what's the
1: yeah and a lot of a lot of institutions will ask whether you have a journalism degree or you have any prior experience and of course I only had experience on uh, on the uh, college newspaper, and I right. had that association with Lester Markel, which I sure. tried to play as hard as I possibly could. Whether whether uh, it worked or not, it's hard to say. But um, I think you do need some facility for writing clearly and logically. Yep. Uh, I think that's number one. Number two, you do need a certain level of curiosity. Number three, you have to have enough confidence to approach people you don't know to ask questions. Yeah. And there's always been a theory in in journalism that shy people tend to go into journalism because it forces them to talk to other people. Okay. okay. <laughs> there is some truth to that, right? In, in fact, that was the case with Lester. That's how he got it, into journalism because he was a very shy boy, you know, yeah. and, and but he overcame that.
0: Yeah, in <laughs> fighting through that early in a career, whether it be the, I remember way back when they had telephone training and they referred to the telephone as this four like, hundred pound gorilla yeah. that you had to lift up and you had to do it frequently and get used to making these phone calls and I suspect uh, uh, to what you're saying it's the same point that you have to do a lot of it and the more you do the the less problematic it is so repetition helps in a lot of things.
1: Repetition helps and I think the other thing you need um, in in the field is you have to have a facility and, and and a passion and a love for telling stories. And if you can combine all that with energy, you can make a go of it.
0: Okay. Now, how long were you at your first job?
1: uh... First daily newspaper job, I was probably there about a year, and then I went to work for a weekly newspaper, and then I did a few other things. Uh, So that was around 1975, 1976, after I'd got out of uh, graduate school. And then I... um, I I was making very little money but money. Right. And I wanted to make more money and I wanted to move up more in the editorial ranks. Not just not just be a beat reporter. Right. And in those days a beat reporter would drive around in their car to whatever assigned territory they had and they would file stories by payphone. Sure. That that's what I did. But I wanted to do more than that and I saw an ad in, this, in the Sunday New York Times for an editor at a newspaper in Manhattan, and that's all it said. Hmm. So I made up a, a, kind of an ad, and I sent my resume in, and about a week later I got a call, and I said, why don't you come in for an interview? I said, okay, what's the publication? <laughs> so I had no idea what the publication <laughs> was. And he says, well, we, we run a newspaper called Electronic News. I says, Okay. I didn't know much about that, right? but I went in for the interview, and I did an editing test, hmm. um, and the job was for a copy editor, and I really didn't know what that was, right. frankly, but it said editor,
0: that, and I was excited by that. And they paid you more money. And they paid me more money, Okay.
1: and I took the test, and um, within a few minutes, the editor came back, and he, he, looked, he, he looked at the test, and he says, that's a very good lead you rewrote. Hmm. When could you start? Okay. And I said, next week, immediately. And this was late December of 1977. So I started January 2nd, 1978 at this newspaper I knew nothing about called Electronic News. Right. And it turned out that Electronic News in those days was the foremost national newspaper for the emerging electronics and computer industries Hmm. at that time. I had no idea what I was getting into.
0: Yeah. Now, you know, uh, a little bit later we'll talk more about this, but uh, the role of luck in a career. And Mm -hmm. as it turns out, you responded to a blind ad, and it turned out to be this preeminent, uh, uh, you know, periodical that was right at tipping point when an industry was going to explode. That's right. And, you know, I, I wish I could give you great credit for your research and your foresight (laughs) but sometimes uh good stuff happens and and you serendipity or whatever you want to explain it with uh yeah it it was was good luck you know and
1: it was it was you know at that time it was about four years before ibm introduced the personal computer Mm. so at that time we were writing in the, in the newspaper about mainframe computers, what we called at that time mainframe computers. And we also were writing about things that were called mini computers. Some of your listeners in New England will remember sure. companies like Digital Equipment Corporation and Data General, which right. were big employers here in New yep. England. And then everything changed about four years later when IBM introduced the personal computer and Microsoft supplied the operating system to the personal computer right and I, and I was there for all of that
0: and the vision that ultimately uh, some of those luminaries had that we would have a computer on our desk at home every home would have one of these and obviously a lot of resistance to that notion it was you know hard to believe that we would have that uh, so that, that that was a good situation and then how long were you at electronic News?
1: I was there for about eight and a half years, Good. and it was the it was the formative experience of my professional life. It yeah. was the most fantastic place to work. Um, the editor of the magazine, a fellow by the name of James Lyden, was the Edward R. Murrow hmm. of the electronics and computer industry press.
0: Okay, what made him so special? Was it his knowledge, or just What made him so different?
1: Because uh, Jim was all about integrity. Hmm. Jim was all about focus. Jim was all about achievement. Hmm. We never had any meetings at Electronic News. Hmm. For some miraculous reason, everybody knew what to do. We didn't need any meetings to tell us this. Okay. It was only a couple of rules at electronic news. Get the news and be first. Do it thoroughly and do it accurately and do it without fear or favor. Okay. And that's what he prized. He didn't care what uh, you know level of seniority you had at EN or who you were. If you got a good story, you could get on page one. Hmm. That was the most important thing to him.
0: Did electronic news uh, have a subscriber base? Did you rely heavily on advertisements? Where, Both. Where... It was
1: actually a paid newspaper. Okay. A paid weekly newspaper. <clears throat> but I was I was there for about eight and a half years, and it formed the basis of everything
0: yeah. in my career. Did you ever witness the conflict between advertising revenue and a story? Meaning a story was undercutting... Either the credibility of the claims of an advertiser,
1: not at Electronic News. Okay. There was a very very hard wall between advertising and uh, the editorial department. Okay. If a member of the advertising staff ever walked over to an editor hmm. at Electronic News to try to influence them, they'd be fired. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right.
1: Good. That's how that's how stringent that was there.
0: Now we're getting moving towards mid-career you know uh, and why don't you just tell us uh, give us the typical day in a life even capturing some of your activities now what does an editor or a writer in this field do and it's changed clearly because of the the technology you're doing so maybe pick a point halfway between where you're sitting now and where you were and what kind of things are you involved in
1: well Back then, and even today, to some extent, although what I'm doing now has got some substantial differences from what I did then, you have to stay on top of the technology and the business trends. The technology is moving so quickly um, that there's always something new to learn, particularly when it comes to the kind of the three foundational pieces that, that we look at, you know, we look at certainly the hardware, how the hardware is evolving. Mm-hmm. And it's no surprise to anybody that the hardware is getting much more powerful mm-hmm. with new generations of semiconductors that, are, that can process information much faster and much cheaper. And then you have the networking piece where things are more and more networked, more plugged into one another. And then, of course, the brains of it all, the software, yep. which is where the real action is. Right. And that's changing very, very rapidly. So on a daily basis, anybody in my field has to stay on top of the technology, and that is no small thing uh, because of all the advances going on at every level. Mm -hmm. Um, You also have to stay on top of the business trends uh, that are affecting companies that adopt the technology Mm -hmm. and how that's influencing how they organize their work, how they make decisions in their companies, How they interact with their customers, how they interact with their suppliers, uh, how they interact with their markets. So you you have to spend a lot of time staying on top of that and understanding um, those trends. And then how those trends affect different types of businesses. So in the manufacturing industry, for example, there are, I always say the manufacturing industry is kind of like the Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) It is so broad and so deep. You've got everything from commercial airplane building, like a, what a Boeing does, to uh, a Procter and Gamble that makes food components and and consumer goods, uh, metal f- fabrication companies, uh, chemical right. producers like Dow Chemical, um, a, a vast array of companies. Right. And to and to understand. The, the, how the, the changes in the technology trends and business trends affect different types of companies requires a lot of effort on our part.
0: And uh, I guess it's true, regardless of what field a person is focusing in as an editorial uh, person or a writer, it could and it, it goes in a lot of occupational groups. I, every time we go see our doctor, we wonder, how, how did they ever stay current? on my ailment. I mean, we're Googling at the same time they're seeing all their clients. And then in other fields, uh, if you're a reporter or if you're a, a writer, staying current is very important. Uh, you can't get dated in any way because you get exposed because you've got all this readership. Yeah. Uh, and I guess credibility is so important in your field. Yeah.
1: And so after, after you kind of go through the staying current phase, then you've got to translate what you've learned into stories. You've got to tell the stories of these companies, of these trends, what Mm -hmm. they mean. And that's where the, 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 the kind of the information gathering has to translate into some sort of analysis that can be meaningful to a reader. Right. And that's where we Spend a lot of time, also, you know, kind of applying our experience and our skills to take that big glob of data right. and translate it into something that could be meaningful to you. Okay, All right. and that's that's a, that's an important skill and an important process.
0: So, do you, of the typical day, do you find yourself reading online information? Uh, let's make a pie up here, uh, calling contacts and and thought leaders, if you will, uh, or just doing your own research, uh, digging or whatever. How do you On it's an impossible question to answer it. The average day doesn't exist, but if I push the point, what would the breakdown be?
1: Yeah, there's, there's multiple levels. So yeah. you, you certainly have to consume a lot of um, information that's written by other sources. Hmm. I'm also a very, very big believer in surveys and um, kind of data research. We, at the Manufacturing Leadership Council, which I run now, um, we do a lot of surveys around issues that our members are interested in. Hmm. So we gain a lot of knowledge about these technology and business trends through the survey research. Right. The other thing we have, we, we, we do and we have to do, and anybody in this kind of a position would have to do also, and I'm a very, very big believer in, You've got to have your fingers in the market. You've got to be in the market. You have to have a presence in the market. You've got to be talking to people, touching things, seeing things. You've got to be in it right, to understand it. Yeah. So it's information gathering from multiple sources. It's research. It's actually being on the
0: ground. Yeah, and you're talking about physical presence presence at a manufacturing location where you see the warts and the blemishes as well as the... The 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 heroic activities and yeah. results. So you,
1: you got to be going into factories. You have to be talking to executives. You've got to be going to conferences. All right. That's
0: that's interesting. And yeah. then what sets you apart now in your career? You have a major role in a global forum that you lead. And and just briefly, uh, what kind of role is that, and how?
1: Yeah. How so so I spent many years on the you know. Just leaving the electronic news time frame and then I went right. into IT magazine publishing yep. and I spent about 20 years doing that understanding IT and the the IT function what we used to call MIS in the late 90s I had the opportunity to go in and be head of a publication that focused just on manufacturing hmm. and I was a little nervous about that at the time yep. you know just manufacturing you know, I said to myself, but um, I did it and I, I realized the Atlantic Ocean was there. Right. As I mentioned before, it was, you may think of it as a niche, but it's the damn biggest niche yeah, you've I know, ever seen. A super highway. <laughs> yeah, it's superhighway. Yeah. And um, one of the things I noticed right at the beginning, this was around 1998, 1999, was that manufacturing technology, the technology used on the factory floor, was converging with IT. All of a sudden, you see Microsoft on the factory floor. Why? Because the technology was changing. Hmm. And personal computing technology, later the Internet technology, was starting to permeate into the factory floor. It never had existed there before. This led to later on um, the formation of the Manufacturing Leadership Council.
0: And you had a... Big role in that. I
1: yeah, I'm. I'm the co-founder of the Manufacturing Leadership Council, which started in um, in kind of a, a ground-up way around 2006, 2007. Um, when and how was, many
0: individual members does it have?
1: Well, now we've got almost a thousand members. Okay. Um, at, at the council. Um, but in those early days, um, it was it was kind of just an informal meeting, and then the members kind of came to us and said, "You know, we we not we need more than just one meeting a year. Sure. We need to kind of do this on an ongoing basis." What could you do? And it kind of led to the th- thought of, "Well, maybe we should try to institutionalize this whole idea." Right. We had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> And so we started to put together this thing called the Manufacturing Leadership Council. And we came up with some programs. And then we started hiring uh, and we started putting together membership packages, have somebody become a member. I had no idea how to price it. Uh, and we just kind of yeah. tested it. And sure. People did it. And then we started hiring salespeople to sell it and marketing people to market it. And it started to grow and grow and grow, and 10 years later, we're celebrating our 10th anniversary this year. 10 years later, we have 1,000 members, a robust uh, conference program and plant tour program. We do 40 webinars a year for our members on different topics they want to focus on. We publish hundreds and hundreds of pages of thought leadership content Around manufacturing issues and technology issues, and we have a senior-level um, manufacturing executive group that I would say is second to none in any in the industry.
0: Well, that's great. Yeah. And you have an affiliation with, with Frost and Sullivan. Frost
1: and Sullivan acquired us five and a half years ago from a New York company where we were founded called okay. Thomas Publishing Company.
0: Yeah. How about satisfiers uh, in your? career in your position what gives you satisfaction
1: well right now it's it's really helping our members uh, sort through many of the issues that they, they that they have and the manufacturing industry is going through a epical change uh, you might think of it as a generational change or historic change which we call manufacturing 4.0 it's it's kind of the the digital revolution that we're all experiencing also in our personal lives, sure. which the manufacturing industry is starting to experience in its entirety. Personally, I still get a great deal of satisfaction when I find out something new.
0: Hmm.
1: A new idea, a new angle on an older idea, some insight
0: hmm.
1: out of everything that's going on that I can then you know, um, provide to the the members,
0: Good. that can help them. Every day there is something new to learn. That's, uh, that's great. How about the flip side? Uh, what gives you dissatisfaction, frustration? If you
1: There's never enough resources. Okay. You know, we, we never have enough ears on the ground or feet on the street. Um, after 10 years, um, the council has been growing nicely. We're at a thousand members. Uh, that's individual members, um, <clears throat> but um, there's a lot more that we could do with more gasoline in the tank, so okay. to speak. Uh, when you think about it, you know the the manufacturing industry in the United States is um, somewhere around two hundred and sixty thousand companies
0: mm. in the U.S. That's amazing,
1: and, and uh, generates uh, around thirteen billion dollars in GDP, and employs around twelve million people. Right, um, we're just scratching the surface of yeah. what we could be.
0: Now, on that point, uh, in our preparation discussion, you mentioned the the survey uh-huh. having to do with how valuable manufacturing is, and then the participants flipped and talked about their their children. Can you talk briefly about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the manufacturing industry faces many challenges, not only this transition to manufacturing 4.0, but it's challenges that go back many, many years, in some cases even decades. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges is the, the image of the industry within the general public. Um, even though many Young people today are the beneficiaries of parents who worked in manufacturing 20, 30, 40 years ago and became part of a thriving middle class that enabled them to go to college and live good lives. Um, The industry has carried with it an image of being what we call the three Ds, dark, dirty, and dangerous. And the way things evolved was that even parents who worked in the manufacturing industry Kind of, and, and there were a number of societal pressures around this as well, not only parents, but they encouraged their children to go into other fields. Now, this image is really outdated, and right. we're trying to change this. Yeah. If you go into any modern factory today, you could literally eat off the floor. Right. They're highly automated. You see computer systems all around, you see automated guided vehicles carrying materials around. Uh, it's it, it's 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 completely different yeah, it's, in many respects than this image, it, but it, it's very hard to change the perception.
0: Yeah, in, in what we're encountering when we interview people for this uh, study, you'll see a real break between people that worked in manufacturing in the in the 40s, 50s, 60s uh, versus the emergence of the the newer environment that you've talked about where. It is about employee engagement, about uh, uh, you know meeting employees' needs, versus the, the darker periods where, uh, you know, the, the first-line supervisor uh, had a boss mentality, versus uh, enabling you know uh, better work conditions and so forth. So it's it's going through a change. Yeah. Uh, if you look back at your uh, career, anything you would have done differently?
1: You know, I, I I thought about that a lot,
0: and um,
1: not really. You know, I think I I, I feel I've been very very lucky mm. in kind of being at the right place at the right time without knowing it many times. Right, right. Well, that's... <laughs> maybe one thing differently that I would do. Maybe I I, I, I should have actually finished graduate school, right. right, and gotten that master's degree. I I, I think I would have liked that. I, I would have also have liked to maybe ha- have made more time to write a book.
0: Hmm.
1: I've always well, wanted to write a book, but they I say we had all have time a, to do that. They
0: say we all have a book in us. So yeah. Do you have a working title for this book that you haven't written yet? Uh, you
1: know, I've had uh, different different subject ideas, but certainly one related to career would be you know something ar- around the idea of, 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 of being at the beginning. I, I I was very lucky and very fortunate, as as I mentioned before, to, to start all of this on, on technology before the PC. Yeah. And I was there at the beginning of all of that, and you know I I met Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer and all those people. Yeah. Before they were household names, and I got to know them, and I got to understand their business and, and all the things that were going on. Um, so I've always had this idea that you know maybe a book around kind of being at the at at the at the dawn right. of this enormous uh, change uh, would be interesting.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, there's a generational component there. Going back to people we've interviewed, uh, the boomers have ridden a great wave in so many ways, whether it be technology and what happened in technology. We interviewed a a person in the jewelry industry, and it's, it's not high tech, but jewelry was a hot commodity that the boomers were seeking and they kept buying jewelry and now it's at sunset because uh, new generations don't find it that important. Uh, They'll buy baubles and that's fine, but it's not the explosive industry that fueled a person's career. And in so many ways, uh, we've listened to people and if the person's 30, 40, 60, they're different stories, based on generational luck, mm-hmm. if lack of a better phrase. So that's that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, bad luck.
1: Uh, I've had a couple of experiences in being in companies that were that lost their way, that had real leadership challenges, um, and went away.
0: Yeah. A lot of times. Uh, that
1: that that that
0: you know that puts you through some difficult times. Yeah. And for. There will always be a churn now. I think companies are merging, they're acquiring others, they're doing all kinds of things. Uh, Did you leave at the right time, leave a little bit too early, or leave late in some of these situations? And if you put it in an advisory context, what advice would you give people uh, that maybe are younger in terms of When's, what are some of the leading indicators that might be the right time to think about updating the resume and leaving? We'll, yeah, yeah.
1: It's, it's a tough thing to know, particularly yeah. when you're young, because what are the signals you should be looking for? Right. Is it financial performance? That's certainly a key one. Um, is it innovation? Is your company really innovating in its market? Can you tell? Um, if if you can tell and they're not, that's a that's a signal to you. Yeah. Um, I've always felt, and I, I got this through you know reporting on companies throughout the years. When I would look at a company, when I would write write about a company, I, I would certainly look at their technology and their products and that sort of thing. But the thing I would tend to focus on mostly to try to get a sense of. Um, whether this was a strong company that knew where it was going and uh, had confidence in itself, I would look at the leadership team. Is the leadership bench strong? Hmm. Do you have confidence in your leaders? And as I look back on some of the companies I worked for, and certainly some of the ones that got into trouble, and I go through that analysis, uh, I... I come to the conclusion in in a number of the cases that, you know, there was a signal there that the leadership was not strong, that there were problems on the bench. Hmm. And if I had understood that better, perhaps I would have gotten out earlier. Right. Because I really think that's the key in a lot of these, in, in a lot of companies. Sometimes the product can be absolutely fantastic. But the leadership is flawed. Right. It's lost its way. It doesn't have a vision. It's enriching itself. It got too egotistical. The company got too bureaucratic. It really yeah. wasn't innovating anymore. It lost touch with its customers. Yeah. And well, you also have to look at, I think, too, what fulfills you as an individual. If the learning is stopped, if the adrenaline isn't pumping, right. that's a signal to you that something's not right.
0: Yeah, the the countervailing force is our tendency to you know stay at rest because we don't like to look for jobs, we don't like to network, we don't like to we don't like change. Many of us don't like change. So we wait, we wait and we hope things are going to get better even though all the red flags that you just went through uh, are blowing pretty strong. So uh, the kind of uh, initiative, the kind of assertiveness you showed early in your career kind of has to be, uh, you know, front of mind a lot as you you manage your career. In the old days, we had mentors that would actively guide us. And even if we have them now, they can't control our career any longer. So we have to kind of take that role.
1: Yeah, it's a difficult situation because the risk equation changes over time. When you're young, and you're just starting out, you have a low risk.
0: Right, right.
1: When you get older and you have a family, a home, a mortgage, yeah. et cetera, sure. risk
0: equation is very different. It Go, goes way up. Yeah. Uh, now, I think on a 10-point scale, I think I know where you're going to end up. Uh, and <laughs> if you had to rank your career, uh, where are you on 10 being high and 1 being low? I am probably, at a, the way I feel about it, I'm, I I feel like I'm at a
1: 12. Okay, all right. You know, I, I mean... I, I love what I do. Yep. Um I'm I, I I don't I don't think of what I do as a job. Yeah. You know, so I I work every day. Yep. Doing something. Right. You know, it's not a nine to five thing with me. Yeah. You know. Which some people don't really understand. No. Um, but your curiosity
0: drives you to the computer or to make the phone call at nine o'clock. To a different time zone because uh, you're really locked in.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of more of an owner mentality. You know, yep. I always go back to this story someone told me once that you know there's a shopkeeper and. Um, and the shopkeeper has an employee, and, and uh, at 5 o'clock, the employee will turn the sign around to close on the door. Right. And at 5.02, somebody knocks on the door, they won't answer it. Yeah. yeah. But the owner
0: will answer it. Right. And that, that's, that's an important consideration.
1: And that's, that, that shows the difference.
0: So whether it be job-related or family-related, uh, person-based or experiential, what, what story comes to mind that uh, you'd like to offer? And it can be done at all so um, well uh, lots of stories um,
1: I think most of them come down to um, people um, I think that's the center of everything uh, for me um, and I'm talking about someone who's Spent forty years writing about technology, right? <laughs> right, but to me, it's it's all about the people. So I think one of the real highlights of of what I my career was when uh, I think it was around nineteen ninety one. And at that time, I was editor in chief of a publication called Datamation. In nineteen ninety one, I had the opportunity. Uh, to interview a, a person by the name of J. Presper Eckert. Is
0: that name ring a No, it doesn't bell? ring a bell.
1: J. Presper Eckert was the co-inventor of the first computer called the ENIAC. It mm-hmm. was developed during World War II to calculate um, uh, cannon trajectories, hmm. artillery trajectories. Right. And he developed this computer, um, with a colleague called John Mockley at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, in the, in the forties. And they really didn't finish this thing until the uh, war was over. But it, the ENIAC was the first computer, first digital computer. And it came around, around 1947, 1948, um, the follow on computer called UNIVAC which you may have some memory of, was installed at the Census Bureau in 1951. So 40 years later, I had the opportunity to interview him and spend a day with him at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and I'll never forget it. Mm. And it we talked about lots of things. Um, and, but his message to me was... You know, computing and technology was moving very fast. It was changing a lot of things. And he was worried about the effect of all of this on the individual. Was it going to impact the individual, individuality, in a negative way? And that stayed with me for years. And years and years. and I, So I've always looked at it after that. Um, when, uh, when, when thinking about technology, when writing about technology, what effect does this have on the individual?
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's critical. Uh, yeah. We, we, you see it even socially, not even in the workplace. When you go to your favorite restaurant and you look over at the family of five and they're all on their smartphones and they're not talking to each other unless they're texting each other But, uh, and that has an impact on uh, relationships. And uh, one strong theme that's come throughout these discussions is it's important to have competence, but you also have to have relationships to succeed in whatever area you're working. So, and obviously, relationships, uh, it's about frequency of contact, and you'll build those. Uh, relationships.
1: Yeah, and we have to, you know, through all of this technology and all of this, uh, all of these things related to connecting through the Internet and all sure. of this, we have to remember to remain human.
0: Yes, yeah, for sure. Well, this has been very helpful, David, and I've enjoyed it, and uh, we want to thank you for your time today. Thank, thank you, you, Fred. I enjoyed it very much. All right.